Well, last week, if you weren't with us, we had a conversation, we started a conversation about biblical generosity. Um, We talked about how we manage the resources God has entrusted to us. And we tend to think, okay, here's a sermon about money, but not just money, but time, the time that we have, the job that you're currently working at. Maybe it's a season of life you're in, you're single and you're like, man, I just need to find the right person. God has a purpose for the season that you're in now. All of the different things that God leads us to, these resources are temporary. And we talked last week and asked the question, how do we leverage these temporary resources for eternal impact? But the basis of biblical generosity that we also addressed last week is that everything you have, everything I have, comes from God. It's a gift from God. And specifically, everything we have also belongs to him couple references. James 1 is one of my favorites. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. And we talked about how the breath in our lungs, the number of your days, even the gifts that you have been given are from him. Paul says, um, in his grace, God has given us the ability to do certain things well. And every one of you falls under that banner. All of you do something well, right? Whether it's teaching or accounting or cooking or athletics or listening or praying. Last week, we talked about Bezalel, this fellow in Exodus 31, who had the ability to create artistic design. He cut stones and he did woodworking. And that, it says, was a result of being filled with the Spirit of God. I think that should blow our minds on how God has equipped all of us to live out his purposes in this world. But all of it's a gift from God. It's entrusted to us so that we too can be generous. And so these truths, um, everything comes from God, everything belongs to God. We can know them, we can believe them and say, yeah, that's right. But I'm sure you've experienced, I certainly have, that it is a whole different challenge to make daily decisions based on those truths. Can you agree with that? That's what we're going to talk a little about this morning in this last week of the series, how to practically demonstrate biblical generosity. And as I was thinking about how to approach this, realizing there's so much more content biblically than a week can really hold, one of the steps toward answering this question is understanding a little bit of the history of giving among God's people. Now, I promise you we're not going to take the the whole morning doing this, Um, but the reason for this is there's a spectrum of experiences in the room on this issue of giving. For some of you, this is a whole new conversation. Like maybe you're sitting here right now being like, oh shoot, do I like owe money? Is there a fee? Like to be, you know, you're waiting for the ask. Um, And then others of you, you've been giving for as long as you can remember. It's just what you do. But I wonder if especially for that latter group, if your original decision to give wasn't prompted by someone basically saying, it's just what you do. And we don't really understand the biblical basis for it or the process that leads up to these decisions. So how do we process these decisions? I think a starting point, um, most of us are familiar with the concept of tithing. Now, if you've never heard tithing, that word is an English word. It means a tenth. Uh, It traces back to a Hebrew word that means the exact same thing. But the idea is that you're giving a tenth or 10% of everything you earn to God. And you can read about this back in the Old Testament, especially Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
Um, but when you begin to read in those books of the Bible, you find a rather complex system of giving that the people of God practiced. One of the best verses that illustrates this for me is Deuteronomy 12, verse 6, where Moses instructs the people to bring your, uh, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, your offerings to fulfill a vow, your voluntary offerings, and your offerings of the firstborn animals of the herds and flocks. You can just kind of feel like, oh my goodness, like what, what, what am I looking at here? What do I start? And there were meaning, there was meaning and there was purpose for every one of these offerings that we're not going to go into this morning. But what was foundational for these people, which I do want to talk briefly about, was tithing. Many people don't know that for these people there were multiple tithes, uh, three in particular that I want to highlight briefly because they are relevant for how we understand what we find in the New Testament. The first tithe, um, the most important tithe, the consistent one, they literally called it the first tithe in their language, was for the Levites. These were descendants of Levi, of the tribe of Levi, as the name obviously indicates, who were responsible for the spiritual oversight and care of the people. They um, assisted the priests in the temple activities. They cared for God's house. They directed the music. They served at the gate. They even operated as trusted civil servants. So, for example, they mediated agreements um, between parties because people trusted them, to be fair. But the first tithe not only supported the work in the temple, but supported the Levites themselves. And the reason for that is the Levites among the tribes of Israel were the only tribe that didn't receive land. They didn't get any property as an inheritance like the other tribes did. And the reason for that is God wanted them to be focused on the spiritual work to which he called them. And he didn't want them being distracted. i got to go home and water my crops and then I'll be right back to pray with you, for example. So they had no land. And today we might think of that as a benefit, right? Like less to mow. Amen? Anybody? Okay. I feel that. Like, right, well, what is land right now? Like, do I got I to gotta water it. That's money. I got to mow it. That's time. Why am I doing this? Anybody ever feel that way? But at this time, land equaled livelihood. All of your food and your sustenance came from land. And so without land, Levites were totally dependent upon the generosity of the other tribes. And in case you're thinking, wow, sweet to be a Levite, right? But remember, they had no other means of income, of putting away for the future for their families, and something a lot of people don't know, and I didn't until quite recently, is the Levites were also required to tithe. Numbers 18, the Lord told Moses, give these instructions to the Levites. When you receive from the people of Israel the tithes I have assigned as your portion, there's their portion, not land or property or livelihood, but the tithe, give a tenth of the tithes you receive, a tithe of the tithe, he calls it, to the Lord as a sacred offering. That, by the way, sustained the priests, which were a smaller group of Levites. But the point is, all the people were required to tithe. So that's the first tithe. The second tithe, and this will take less time, was an additional 10% of what they harvested from their livestock, their crops, and it's called the feast tithe. This one's fun. I'm like, okay, let's find a way to get back to this one. Uh, and I'll tell, I'll tell you why. The, the reason is the people would take a per that percentage of their harvest, and rather than bring it to the Levites, they would bring it to Jerusalem, and they would eat all of that food and drink or whatever it is they harvested. They would party. 
They would sit with their families. They would, it says, celebrate in the presence of the Lord. I dig that. And, and for families that were far away, like from Jerusalem, to, to gather up all of that 10% of whatever they harvested and bring it all to Jerusalem, if that was too much for them, it said they could sell all of that in their own town, take the money to Jerusalem, and then buy whatever they wanted for the feast. Literally. Here's what, um, here's what uh, let's see. Moses said to the people, spend the money on whatever your soul desires. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Whatever your appetite craves. I'm reading from the Bible here. <laughs> and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. That's a big deal. Celebrating God's faithful provision among the community of your family and your friends. So that was a tithe. So you had the first tithe that was for the Levites in the house of God. You had the feast tithe. And then every three years, here's the third one, they had something known as the poor tithe. Now, this is what it sounds like. Every three years, this would replace the feast tithe. Now, I'm not going to go into depth, but the Jews operated on a seven-year sabbatical cycle. And so there were the years of the feast tithe, but then every third year, the poor tithe replaced the feast tithe. That's all I'm going to say about that. But the idea of this is they would collect and gather that 10%, but in their own towns, they would keep it there and it would provide for the poor and the needy among them. I just read from Deuteronomy 14, but that chapter goes on in the next verse to describe this tithe. Verse 28, at the end of every three years, you shall bring the tithe of your produce in the same year and store it in your nearest town. Give it to the Levites. So there's still a management of it by the Levites in their town who has no portion or inheritance among you, as well as the foreigner, the fatherless or the orphan, and the widow who are within your town so they can eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work. So there's a lot more, obviously, that we could say about these tithes, not to mention the free will offerings and all the other things that they did, but I want us to understand these. Because when we turn to the New Testament, what do we find? First of all, it is important to note there is no command to tithe. There is no mandated amount that you are told to give. There is no mandated percentage that you are told to give. Now, some of you might be like, sweet, right on. On the other hand, though, the priorities and values that we find in the Old Testament show up all through the New Testament. But framed, not in the context of law, but of the spirit of generosity and the freedom to follow the Lord's leading into these areas of need. Amen? It's beautiful. And so if you think about the law mandating 10%, give 10%, okay, I'll give my 10%, move the decimal over and write my check, I'm done. Or in the case of the Jews, it was actually 20 plus percent, that we just, which we just saw. If that's law, what do you imagine the spirit of generosity might lead you to? We're told many places in the New Testament to care for the poor, to look after the vulnerable, James 1 says that true religion, which God recognizes as pure and faultless, is, among other things, to look after the orphans and the widows and to care for them in their distress. 1 Timothy 5, another example, Paul tells Timothy to care for the widows among you. Sound familiar to any of those tithes? And then Paul goes on in that same chapter, by the way, to address the values beneath the first tithe. Verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, Let the elders who direct the affairs of the church 
be considered worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. That's a little obscure. Just simply put, if the ox is working in the field, let him eat some of the grain as he's working. That's the idea. And, quote, the worker deserves his wages. Now, I want you to notice what Paul's doing here is not putting a law on the New Testament people of God, but he's pulling on principles and practices of the Old Testament and allowing it to inform how we live as the people of God. Does that make sense? Another example that Paul references is Galatians 6. Verse 6, he says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Again, he doesn't say give 10%. You have to do this. Here's how to do it. He just says, hey, it makes sense, right? 1 Corinthians 9, last example, he references those who were working at the temple and the fact that they eat at the temple. And then he says this, in the same way, the Lord has commanded those, uh, that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Now, I just want to time out for a second and say that I promise before God, I have no ulterior motive in sharing these verses with you. I can happily say that this church has been unspeakably generous to my family and to our staff. And we have this benevolent fund that supports the orphans and the widows and the needy among us that miraculously fills up every month. And the reason is because generosity is, I would say, probably the greatest gift of this church. So I'm not standing up here saying, please help give more to us. But I want us to understand the biblical basis for what we're doing so that when we make decisions, we go, here's why. Without this law, though, without a mandated amount, how do we make decisions? I'm going to keep drilling in, if I could. I want us to understand that, first of all, we're not the first to ask that question, to be confused. Um, We might imagine the early church had this figured out, but Paul says to the Corinthians, Regarding your question about money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. So before we hear what that procedure was for them, note that they they wanted clarity. They had a question. Paul, what is the practical way that we can exercise biblical generosity? And I love how Paul doesn't just say, well, no, no, you, you figure it out for yourself. He had a procedure which... According to that verse, he had told to multiple churches. And by the way, in the next verse, here here it is. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then it was carried by one of the church members to Jerusalem to help those in need. But again, there's no law here. I don't think this is something he's saying all people for all time should do it exactly this way. Did I miss the first day of the week? Oh, no. He's saying develop a habit. Have some sort of practice. Don't just wing generosity. But he doesn't say this is the amount. I want you to give this the percentage. I'm going to keep a tally of who's giving and who's not giving. There's none of that. Instead, we see in the New Testament this regular invitation to participate in God's generosity, to recognize him as the source and the owner of everything we have and to enter into this work that brings him so much joy. But we're still left with this question. (laughs) How do I make decisions in this area? Now, this is where we're going to get to it, okay? Um, You may agree that it is the responsibility of the church to care for the needy. You may think, yes, it makes sense that the church should care for those who are leading it. 
But how do you make decisions personally about your part in that? Friends, I would love to give you the answer. I would love to go past where Paul stopped and say, this is the amount. And I was thinking this week, wouldn't that be easier? Isn't it easier to just have a rule? Just, just give me the answer. I mean, even when we're struggling with biblical stuff, theological questions, you're just like, Micah, can you just stand up and tell us all how to think? I just, I don't want to wrestle with this. But as I was reflecting on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, every time he references an Old Testament law or practice, he always takes it to a deeper heart level. One of the best examples is Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, right? But then he goes on to say, if you're even angry with your brother, you're already in dangerous territory. So he pushes past the rule to the root of our behaviors. And then he goes on in the chapter to say, rather than just avoid killing someone, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty, pretty easy bar to meet, I think, for most of us, avoid killing someone, he goes on in the next uh, section to say, pursue reconciliation with anyone that you think might have anything against you. How's that for a bar raising? Pursue peace actively, even if it's not your fault. If you think someone has something against you, go after them. And then the culmination of this line of thinking in the end of the chapter, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We have a God who is indiscriminately generous. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because that's how God treats us. And that's what it means to be a child of the Father and to be image bearers of God is we live like him. We love like him. And so the point is, what is harder to do? Avoid killing someone? Or love your enemy the way you love yourself. And so I began to wonder if Jesus' Sermon on the Mount had included these words. You have heard it said, give 10%. But I say to you, what would Jesus say? I think it's presumptuous to try to finish a hypothetical sentence on behalf of Jesus, but we don't have to. Luke chapter 6, among other places, Jesus said, give to anyone who asks. Lend money without expecting anything in return. Now, now, does that sound, at least in our modern society, foolish? Yeah, let's just be honest. Love you, Jesus. But this sounds crazy. But this is his heart. This is the way he's loved us. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And he doesn't discriminate. He doesn't say, well, you've done just a little too much wrong in your life. Amen. He says, nope, my blood is going to cover all your sins. I don't care what sin. I don't care how much sin. I died for all of you. The Spirit of God moving us past these boxes we want to check into the freedom of joyful generosity toward others. And again, how do we arrive at these practical decisions. Well, here's what I would say. If everything comes from him, if everything belongs to him, 
Wouldn't it make sense that he has a vested interest in how we use the resources he's given to us? Wouldn't it make sense that he would be the first stop in our process to say, Lord, I know this is all yours and I know that you have a purpose for giving it to me. What do you want? And that is the point, friends, of the new covenant. It is not some law that is put on us, whether it's from a verse that we're misreading or a pastor that's abusing his role. It is the spirit of generosity. It is Christ in us compelling us with a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit in all of the freedom of what it means to live as image bearers of Christ in this world. And so while I believe that a regular habit of giving is helpful and important, I do, our first step is not to develop a habit or to meet a standard or to pursue a cause. Our first step is to offer ourselves to him. Because that's exactly the way Paul described this church in, in um, the book of Second Corinthians. He's talking about these early Christians that were incredibly generous. And he shares the story of these particular people who were, he says, extremely poor. And they were going through terrible times. Not just like I stubbed my toe, but like they're being persecuted. They're having their stuff stolen. I mean, like really terrible stuff is happening to them. But because of their joy... He says they overflowed in generosity to others. Notice not measuring out their 10% and saying, okay, I did that part, now what's the next thing? But, but listen to their process. I want you to see these verses. In verse three, it says, they gave beyond what they could afford of their own free will. Uh, verse four, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. How upside down is that? from how we think about giving. Please, please, I don't want to miss out on the blessing of helping these people. But here's why they were so eager. I love verse five. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So their decision wasn't based on the need. It wasn't based on all oh, these people are poor. It wasn't based on all oh, the apostles are asking and I guess we should probably respond. It was they gave themselves to the Lord and then the will of God compelled them to meet the needs in the way that he led them to do. It was love for Jesus and a commitment to saying, first and foremost, God, all of this is yours. What do you want me to do with this? That is our first step as followers of Christ. And where that leads you and you and you and all of you, I have no idea. But isn't that exciting? Better than thinking of this as some sort of tax you know, our family's approach, and just as a little disclaimer, I prayed about whether or not to, to share this. Obviously, Jesus talks about um, discretion and giving, not let your right hand know what your left is doing. Our hearts are so critical there. Am I trying to parade? Um, and so I'm not going to say anything about amounts, percentages, but I also really feel that we're awkwardly silent on this issue in a way that situations where practical ideas could be shared and help other people take a step. So I just wanted to share a little bit of our journey very briefly. My wife and I have always felt convinced um, to prioritize the church in our giving. We've always done that. But then beyond that, we've had friends along the way who are uh, part of different ministries and mission organizations, parachurch we call them, um, but they're really part of the church um, and the work of the church, that, that we have felt led to add to our support um, at one point, we ran across an organization that helps orphans. There's a few of those, and we ended up adopting an orphan and thought, man, that's awesome. Let's do that. 
My favorite part, though, of our giving budget is a monthly amount that we can use however we want to help anyone with any need. And, and I think what I love so much about that is that e- even though we believe regular giving is important, it's like this adventure every month where, where, where God is like, we're just kind of on the lookout. We're like, okay, what's going on? And, and we don't always get to use all of it, I'll confess. But like if we come across a need and God's like, that's important, we have money to go in that direction. And we love that. And I'm sharing this not to say, hey, look at the way we're doing this, but it occurred to me last week that I have no idea what percentage we give. It actually surprised me when I was studying this, and I was like, I actually don't know what percentage we're at. But then I thought, isn't that the point? I didn't make the decision based on a percentage or a rule or, well, we should be giving 2% each to, like, that's dumb. Let Jesus lead you. Yes, I do think, as I spent time sharing, there's biblical, historical practices that I think we can learn from and model as God leads us. Yes, that's our starting point. But man, God wants us to live past that rule-based thinking and be able to follow him as he leads. When we offer ourselves to him, he will lead us in those specific decisions. Well, the last thing that I... um, wanted to share before we close is I wanted to share four principles. It's very quick that have been a really important part of my own journey. These are things God has kind of revealed to me and led me to over the years, especially to get over certain obstacles in this area of giving. And so my hope in sharing it is that one or more of these might meet you right where you're at. Um, So the first principle, uh, Jesus addressed regularly, and I'm stating some of these in provocative ways that maybe will stick in your head, so just forgive me in advance, but generally speaking, generous people are happier people. If you're sitting back and saying, okay, well, I I may agree with you, but I I just don't know that I'm really moved to change anything in my current structure, you'll be happier. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus? The word blessed, I think we think of with a little churchy halo over it. Um, It means deeply happy. Deeply satisfied. When you're giving. I like the way that flips our thinking where sometimes giving is like, I'll suffer so they can benefit. (laughs) But Jesus flips that upside down. I shared this verse last week. A generous man will himself be blessed. Because he helps the poor. I love that emphasis in the word himself. Almost feels unnecessary, but there's a, little, there's a little emphasis there like, yes, dude, you're helping the poor. Good job, thanks. But did you know, you yourself will be blessed when you embrace a life of generosity. You'll be happier. The second point that has been so helpful for me is that generosity starts where you're at. And the reason I share this is for many years I had this imaginary future where I would eventually have enough to start being generous. Anybody feel that? Has anyone had a daydream of winning the lottery and you start imagining all the ways you would bless people? Can I lovingly suggest, if you are not generous now, you won't be then. Whatever your then is. And the reason is because generosity is not about your resources, it's about your heart. It's about a willingness to start right where you are 
and invest in trust that God is going to bring the return that he promises to bring, whatever that is. Paul puts it bluntly in 2 Corinthians 9. I love this wording. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. That makes sense? But one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And I think that's so critical. That makes sense to us. But the way we often think is, once I get a harvest, then I'll be generous and sow seeds. And Jesus is like, no, it's the opposite of that. One chapter earlier, Paul says, if the willingness is there, I love that word, if you have any desire at all to step forward in this area of generosity, then give according to what you have, not what you don't have. And the translation I take from that is, stop imagining a hypothetical future scenario well, where you'll be able to be generous. Start where you are. And this leads to the third point, closely related Surplus doesn't produce generosity, but generosity always leads to surplus. And again, it's that, it's that thing where if I just made this much money, then I'd be generous. No, because your focus is on money. It's the love of money. And so if you have 40000 and then you make fifty, you're going to love that fifty, And you're going to want the sixty. It's a heart problem. And this is something that's embedded in the Proverbs that, that generosity leads to surplus. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Now, whether you own a barn or you're interested in wine, that's not the point. The point is when we put God first, rather than making him wait till the end, maybe. When we seek his kingdom above our own interests, he will provide everything we need and beyond what we need so we can share with others. So many places the Bible says that. The book of Malachi in the Old Testament, the people had stopped giving. They had started putting their money toward other things. They're like, I'm gonna just kind of slice this down a little bit and I'm gonna buy a new blank. And it's the only place in the Bible where God says, put me to the test Test me. See what I'll do. Here's what he says in in chapter 3, verse 10 of Malachi. It's a fascinating book if you want to read that later in the Old Testament. He says, "Bring bring your tithe into the storehouse. And put me to the test. See the Lord, uh, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. See, guys, generosity is a demonstration of trust. To put that seed in the ground and and not know what's going to happen in the future. What what if nothing grows? (laughs) It's trust in in the laws of nature, but also the laws of spirituality that God has ordained and established. Because the flesh will always say, I want a surplus. And then I'll think about being generous. But faith says, I'm going to be generous and trust God for the surplus. The last point speaking of trust, is that generosity grows our heart for the things of God. And this one is so important and so personal for me because you might be here thinking this all sounds fine, but I don't care. And man, I think it's beautiful to be honest about that, truly, especially in the church where we're faking it a lot of the time. Just say, I just don't care, I don't care. But at the same time, realize God gives you the power in cooperation with him to change the desires of your heart. 
And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Again, so much of this comes back to his Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, temporary resources, but store up treasures in heaven. Why? Because where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Your desires follow the direction of your investment. Our possessions influence our passions. You see? And again, it's backwards from how we normally think I'm going to give or I feel like giving. Okay, there's some validity to that. But Jesus says, if you want to feel like giving, give. Plant the seeds in the ground. And practically, if you want to care about missions, if you want a heart, invest in that direction. Your time, your prayers, your money. If you want deeper relationships, don't just sit there. Join a life group. Sign up to be mentored or to mentor someone else. If you want to be a worshiper who feels comfortable lifting your hands, what do you think I'm going to say? Try lifting your hands every once in a while. And your heart will follow your hands. Friends, we are all uh, generous. We're all generous people. We all invest in the things we care about, whether it's a hobby or TV channels or vacationing, or that morning latte. We're all generous. The question is, where is your generosity directed? Are the resources God has entrusted to you for this short life being leveraged in ways that create eternal, lasting impact in the lives of others? Because again, Jesus in Matthew 6 said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that we worry about will be added to you. And this is in the same chapter where Jesus tells that parable of the little birds who just instinctively know the Father is going to provide everything they need. And humans alone are fretting and worrying and scurrying around like it's all up to us. And he's like, don't you see? Look at the animals. Look at the flowers. Seek first his kingdom and God will provide. So as our worship team comes to close us, I want to encourage you, based on what we just heard, to, first of all, give yourself to him. And for you, that might be, the first step of that isn't related to your resources, but your, your heart. Maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you've never entrusted yourself to Jesus. You've never invited him into your life and said, I I'm a mess, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, but I know you came and died and rose again for my salvation. That's your first step is say, Jesus, I give myself to you. I want you to live in me and make your home in me. But then in this area of resources, it opens up a whole new world of adventure of like, God, what do you want to do with what you've entrusted to me? And I don't want you to just think about the good things in sort of the assets column, like I've got money, I'm pretty smart, I'm friendly, I've got a house, I've got cars. Think about your pain. Think about the job you just really don't like. Think about that person that you're at odds with. How could that be an opportunity for the gospel to shine forth? How could that be an opportunity for something eternal and lasting to happen in a really unexpected way? So I want to encourage and challenge and urge you to give yourself to him. On your way home in the car, don't wait. Don't put it off. Say, Lord, I don't know what this means. Maybe I don't even know what I'm saying, but I'm all yours. 
the next step is ask him, Lord, would you give me one practical way that I can invest in a direction that I need my desires to change or grow? Maybe it's your time. I'm going to volunteer and serve. I'm going to get involved in mentoring. I'm going to give money. Whatever it is, he'll lead you in that. But the worst thing that you could possibly do, friend, is nothing. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable of the talents where he gives out different amounts to different people. And I love how in that chapter, he never once compares people based on the amount they were given, which we do all the time, right? And he never compares people based on the amount they made from what they were given. The only one that he rebukes and chastises is the one who did nothing with what he was given. So I want to encourage you, take a step today. Give yourself to God. Say, God, lead me. What is one way that I can proactively apply your truth in my own life? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you who were rich with all of the resources and treasures of heaven gave it all up so that we through your poverty could be made rich so that we could have forgiveness and cleansing and freedom and life and not walk under a cloud of shame or fear of death. We are free from fear because of what you have done, Jesus, and because of your spirit living in us. I pray that today anyone who does not have your spirit living in them, who has not been born again, would believe in you, Jesus, and would be a new creation. And Lord, we commit these next steps to you. We commit these decisions to you. Thank you for the freedom of not having to, to write out a list of laws. Thank you for the freedom, Lord, as a pastor to not have to follow people around and say, are you doing the thing? But that we can look to you, all of us, and say, Lord, lead us. Build us up. Use us to bless those around us. Have your way among us, Jesus, today, tomorrow, for the rest of our lives.